This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we saw the horrific ending of French Florida and Spain establishing its hegemony over what would now be called Georgia and Florida, at least in the eyes of the Europeans. In reality, the Native Americans were very much still in control of their territory. But for the French, that meant that the future of New France fell in places far to the north of what we would now call the American South. And in fact, French Florida was just a detour in our story of New France because it leads us right back to the St. Lawrence. Now, the last time we visited this area, it was the story of Jacques Cartier and Donnacona, the leader of the St. Lawrence Iroquois, at least a faction of them. Now we're moving ahead several decades, and a lot of things have changed. The most shocking of which is the complete disappearance of the St. Lawrence Iroquois, which may at one point have been 25 separate nations with a very similar culture, cousins to the Haudenosaunee or to the Huron far to the west. Scholars are divided, but sometime between the 1570s and the 1580s, it appears that the St. Lawrence Iroquois were completely taken out of the area, either by disease brought by Europeans or by warfare. And now there's a big debate on whether both of those played a factor and which groups they warred with. Now, I know because I noted it in a previous podcast on the Iroquois that the St. Lawrence Iroquois, they had a unique form of pottery, as all people do. And that pottery right around this time that we're talking about, the time of their disappearance, shows up in other places suddenly among the Huron Confederacy and the Iroquois Confederacy, meaning that they took in at least female captives who were making pottery. Now, were they captives or refugees? We don't know. Perhaps the St. Lawrence Iroquois were at war with the Haudenosaunee. Perhaps they are at war with the Huron, or both. There's no way of knowing exactly. The historian Bruce Trigger notes that a lot of native confederations were founded just before or during this mysterious time that the St. Lawrence Iroquois disappeared. Some of the later dates for the Iroquois Confederacy put them in the 1550s, 60s, 70s. The Huron Confederacy, the Pitoon Nation, and many others. Trigger goes on to call, as a result of all this, the St. Lawrence a no-man's land, essentially not comfortably within anyone's sphere of influence. But this wouldn't be 100% true. It was clear that certain tribes along the St. Lawrence had small areas that they were in complete control of. And most important for our story here is the Innu, who we talked about in our first episode. The Innu controlled one small area called Tadusek, or Tadusik, depending on whether you're an Anglophone or a Francophone, will depend on how you end that word. Now, the Innu clans around Tadusik controlled the trade with the Europeans. So after Cartier left, the Europeans still came around. And as fur became more and more fashionable and rarer and rarer in Europe, the trade became more and more valuable to the Native Americans in North America. And so the Innu around Tadusuk, instead of being nomadic like all their other brethren, became semi-sedentary just to control that one site. Because there was a language continuum from the St. Lawrence all the way to Hudson's Bay and beyond. And this particular group of Innu managed to establish a monopoly over the fur trade. It was difficult for Europeans and Native Americans to meet up at random points. They had no, neither of them had the same concept of time, 
Neither of them had the same concept of maps or directions or times of year. And uh, there was very little communication between the groups, especially in the 16th century. But the Innu did establish that at the port of Tadusik, Tadusik, Tudusik, whatever you want to call it, at that port, Europeans can make it there any time of year and there will be furs to trade. And on the native side, they had managed to create networks of trade going, like I said, deep into the continent. And so all the really good furs from the north, where the animals have these big heavy pelts, especially the beaver, they were all being funneled down to Tadoussac. And so by the 1580s and on, these trade networks that used to trade little shells from the ocean with native copper from deep inland, co-opted by the fur trade, furs from deep within the continent in exchange for European goods particularly those goods made out of metal that could be used for many different purposes that the natives otherwise didn't have. Again, they had native copper, and they would wear ingots of it as jewelry and things like that. But iron, a hunk of iron, could be worked into useful tools. And at this period of time, you think, oh, well, you know, a European axe comes along, and now all the natives are going to use European axes. That doesn't seem to be the case. What happens early on in the archaeological record, as far as everyone can see, is that an axe head would make it to the Huron, which it did. As early as the 1550s, the Huron were actually in possession of European metals. But that axe head would be broken apart and turned into things like small little knives or arrows. So at this period of time, 1550s all the way to 1600 and even beyond, European metal is being traded, but it's being used as if it were a native material. And as I've brought up in other podcasts before... Uh, sometimes modern social studies teachers will present it as the Europeans were taking advantage of natives, giving them little trinkets and baubles for skins that they could resell for tons and tons of money back in Europe. But once again, you have to take a wider view. Take the native perspective. They had no access to these iron goods that would just change the way they lived their lives. An iron arrowhead would last far longer than a flint arrowhead. That changes your quality of life instantly. Whereas furs were plentiful, especially for the Innu, who subsided on uh, mostly hunting and gathering seafood. So again, from the native point of view, the natives were giving away their trash in exchange for things they had absolutely no access to. And in fact, the furs that the Europeans wanted the most were what were called wet beaver. They were beaver, beaver skins that have already been worn by natives as clothed for clothing for quite a long time. And so to the natives, they were worn out. They were used up. They were dirty. They were greasy. They were trash. And so both groups of people would walk away thinking they got the better of the deal. And that's, that's really what you want from a trade. So far from the Europeans taking advantage or controlling the situation or corrupting the culture, the natives were in firm control of this trade of furs for European goods. Again, the Innu, uh, specific clans close to Tadusuk, had a monopoly, and all the tribes beyond it benefited to some extent. The Huron, like I mentioned, uh, were the granary of the Algonquins, and they were able to trade the Innu corn, and in exchange, they received metal goods that would further increase their production of corn and the quality of life of everybody in their villages. And like I said before, the trade networks, native in origin, were pre-existing, and the European goods just flooded the market and participated in it. They were not created by the Europeans. In fact, the natives at Tadasuk would sometimes refuse to trade with the Europeans, and wait for more and more traders to show up so that there would be a glut of buyers for their furs and only a certain number of furs driving up the prices. So the native traders knew exactly what they were doing. And in return, they would distribute those as trade goods or gifts to other tribes, building alliances, making the Innu uh, very strong 
and their allies somewhat stronger in the process, all to protect them from the Iroquois from the, to the south, whom they feared more than anyone else. But now let's turn to the European side. What is their part in this story? Why are they still hobnobbing around the St. Lawrence? Cartier was long gone. If you read your traditional history books, it mentions Cartier, then there's an 80-year gap or so, then you learn about Samuel de Champlain, and they act like nothing happened. Total lie. Total lie. Just like we began this season talking about the cod fisheries that were hidden off the coast of North America, and how the, the fishermen themselves may have discovered North America before Columbus even set sail. Might have happened, may not have happened. The same families that participated in all the fisheries several generations removed, were now getting involved in the fur trade, as fur became more and more expensive and more lucrative compared to fish. This entire phenomenon of basically not knowing what all these Europeans were doing, despite them being there, is called a conspiracy of silence. This, is, this term comes from the historian John Whithoft, and I agree with it. Again, it started with the fisheries, and then it extended two, three, four generations later into fish and fur. Essentially, private traders had been canoodling all up and down the coast of North America, all without telling anyone. It all stayed within their family, within their business, within their village. And in fact, evidence of this is the traders along the St. Lawrence from the 1550s all the way up until we have Samuel de Champlain and formal record keeping. A lot of them were from Saint-Malo, the exact same port town that Jacques Cartier came from. So far from thinking that the story just ended with Donacona and Cartier and Roberval, it just kept going. But nobody was writing about it because people were making money. And if you know there's a place you can go and make some money, but there's only a certain supply, you're not going to tell anybody about it. And so from the 1540s all the way to 1600, we have the conspiracy of silence. The historian Samuel Eliot Morrison notes that while there weren't colonies in the sense that you or I would think of them, these fishermen and fur traders would set up what he called summer colonies. They would construct shacks and, when the weather was good, have these small little dwellings, small little villages that would crop up suddenly during the warm seasons and then suddenly go empty when it was time to go back to Europe and to a far fairer winter. And we have almost no stories about this period of time, except records back in France and the Netherlands and England and other places mentioning supplies to be sent out, supplies received. And that's about it. The stories of those men, the adventures, the wars, the battles... The drama, the relationships, who knows? It's a huge mystery. But in our next episode, we'll meet one guy who might have had a story or two to tell. But he won't be telling it to us. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, geez, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And then we had John Cabot. And we had Verrazano. And we had Cartier. And we had all these other people within a 30-year period. And now suddenly we have half a century of just nothing, of mystery, a conspiracy of silence. Once again, I'm sorry I'm being repetitive. What was going on in Europe? Well, first of all, if you listen to our last episode, which I hope you did, France was going through a series of civil wars that killed two to four million people. So France was uh, consumed with their own problems. England, too, had a lot of problems. But there was one attempt to make a small colony on an island in the St. Lawrence. It was in 1597, and it was settled by a group of Brownists, a group of separatists similar to what you would know as the 1620 Pilgrims, but it failed miserably. And so right there, there was a little blimp on the radar. Oh my goodness, we could have had our Pilgrims 23 years before they actually showed up, but didn't happen. The St. Lawrence would increasingly become more and more French as these trading families along the coast of France 
would come to dominate the St. Lawrence and push everybody else out, including the Dutch, who would end up uh, making a base of operations on the Hudson, far to the south, which of course would grow to be New Netherland, which we covered in the first season. Laying idle all this time as far as the French government was concerned, France wanted to start a new colonization project of the St. Lawrence or the surrounding areas, but they found it very hard to do so. Men like Roberval and Cartier, they just weren't around anymore. What the French government found was a series of merchants like we talked about. No single outfit being wealthy enough to front the money to start an entire colony, to feed people for potentially two years, two or three years, uh, erect buildings, and take the loss until a profit was made. Also, these families knew, I'm going to spend all this money to make a static settlement, and then another French operation will just work around me. They'll go further upstream, they'll go further downstream, they'll go further inland, they'll make a, tri- a, a treaty with a new tribe or something. They will outcompete me, and I will waste all my resources on one spot. And so the French government really couldn't find a way to formally colonize its possessions that it claimed to possess anyway. We know better than that now. And so the whole of New France was left open to these syndicates of traders that came from France, and particularly from Saint-Malo, Jacques Cartier's hometown. His own extended family would continue trading in the area for decades afterwards, the most notable of which would be the Noel brothers, and particularly Jacques Noel, who by the 1580s was getting up there in age, obviously, and his sons had taken over the business, Jean and Michel Noel. Well, round about 1587, the two brothers lost four boats in a skirmish with another French trading outfit. Jacques Noel back at home thought to himself, Wait a minute, I'm Cartier's family. Cartier had rights to all the trading in this area way back in the 1540s. That should be inherited unto me. And King Henri III of France agreed. January 12th, 1588, Jacques Noel and a business partner by the last name of La Genet were granted a monopoly over all the trading in the St. Lawrence, or what they would have called New France, as an extension of the rights that were granted to Cartier way back in 1540. There seems to have been some provision to start a permanent colony, which is ultimately what France wanted. They wanted to extend their domains with settlements that could be affordably obtained anyway. But So they were allowed to take 60 prisoners a year to New France to begin the formal inhabitation of New France by French people. But this appears to never have happened for two reasons. For one reason... Jacques Noel himself, several years before, just like his uncle, Jacques Cartier, climbed Mount Royal and looked around and saw nothing of value to him. Ultimately, they wanted to find a passage westward to get to Asia. None could be found. And so three years later, when he's uh, granted the rights to a monopoly under the stipulation that he would form some sort of a permanent settlement, he didn't really take that provision seriously. But also, the other traders in Saint-Malo they didn't take Jacques seriously. During the same exact year that he received his monopoly, the bourgeoisie of Saint-Malo, they threw themselves in front of the king, and they said that Jacques Noel, although he's related to Jacques Cartier, has no more rights to the area or the fur trade or any other trade than anybody else who's been trading in that area, and that the people of Saint-Malo have been traveling there for some time. And furthermore, his business partner, Le Genet, has no even familial relation to this monopoly at all, to these benefits. And so the king, that very same year, revoked Jacques Noel's monopoly. And everything again was cast back into the 
conspiracy of silence. And so in the 1590s, New France was plunged back into hearsay. We have no idea what happened. Just little snippets. So you might say to yourself, well, maybe nothing interesting happened. Well, here's one little bit we get from an English trader. So English Captain George Drake in 1593, he came upon a small island in the St. Lawrence. He writes that these islands were full of Bretons, not Britons, Bretons from Brittany and France, primarily those from Saint-Malo. No surprise there. He tried to make a base of operations on one of these tiny islands tucked away, but he was quickly found out and he was forced out of his settlement by 200 Frenchmen and 300 natives. What is the story there? How do you have a 500-man strong army in the middle of the St. Lawrence in the 1590s? And who was in charge? Who was funding this? What, what tribes were involved? What were their treaties with one another? What? These are the stories that are buried deep in time and may be lost to us forever. But lucky for you, the listener, we are now exiting the mystery period and entering a period where we have far more documentation and we have stories to tell and not of all not all of them are going to end pleasantly so shortly before the year 1600 we see one of these mysterious characters come forward in the historical record grave dupont i believe i'm saying his name right i'll just call him dupont dupont had been in the saint lawrence trading for at least 20 years he was a bit over the hill but that came with a world of experience that only those in the conspiracy had and so dupont proposed to a wealthy merchant who had also operated in the area named Pierre Chauvin to form a permanent colony at Tudesec. This way, the, while the natives have a monopoly there, they would have a permanent base there and would be able to trade any time of year, and then from their permanent base be able to push out all the other traders. And so creating a monopoly and a monosopy. So the natives would have a control on the supply, and the French would have control on the demand. The king gave Pierre de Chauvin a 10-year monopoly starting in the year 1600. Dupont and Chauvin, they made an arrangement with the Innu to settle at Todesic. And they were very happy with this arrangement because they had promised to the Innu metallic weapons, weapons made out of metal, in order to take on the Iroquois to the south. Now, we're not talking about guns, but we are, we are talking about blades and other sorts of implements of destruction. And so the Innu were pleased that the French were settling at Tadoussac. I like these kinds of stories because it, it highlights that it wasn't always about Europeans moving in, not asking permission, taking over native lands. Sometimes the natives, or often actually, the natives wanted these first groups of Europeans to settle among them, provide them with goods nobody else could get. In the first year of the colony's existence, it mostly floundered. And by the time it was getting cold, most of the people wanted to leave. I imagine these were sailors and traders who worked in the area previously, and they were used to leaving in the wintertime. Because as we all know, winter on the St. Lawrence is, is a bit more harsh than it is back in France. And so 16 remained over the winter of 1600 into 1601, and only five lived in the entire colony. And it's recorded that they only lived because of the goodwill of the Innu, who took those five in to make sure they survived into the spring. As you can imagine, this was terrible news for Pierre de Chauvin. He, he was never going to create a functional colony if two-thirds or more of the colony either uh, leaves in the winter or just flat-out dies over the winter, probably from scurvy. And then to make things even worse, it was discovered that coinciding with him uh, getting these certain rights to New France and trying to start his own little colony, there was another guy who had an older claim by the last name La Roche to the same exact areas 
the same sort of privileges and that the two titles were overlapping. And so Pierre de Chauvin was actually made the lieutenant of New France, lieutenant general of New France. And so the man who's been missing from this story the entire time is on paper anyway, the viceroy of New France. There's a man out there, Laroche, who's technically been the viceroy of New France since 1578. It's been a quarter century. Where's this guy been? Well, that's going to be the final chapter in this episode. This will require us traveling from the St. Lawrence to 100 miles off the coast of Nova Scotia to a little tiny island or so-called island called Sable Island. In French, the name of the island means Island of Sand. And the descriptions of the island vary wildly. Basically, authors can't decide whether this is a very large sandbar or a very small island. Some authors claim that Sable Island actually changes frequently in dimensions and argue that it pretty much is just a sandbar, just a speck of sand out in the ocean. Other authors also claim that the island actually moves in location. In a sense, the sand is shifting like a wave slowly moving about the Atlantic, a little further this way, a little further that way. Not much of an island. And even getting dimensions on this uh, very, from description to description, Samuel Eliot Morrison, who I quote a lot, said that the island is a bow-shaped strip of sand, 20 miles long and a mile wide. And yet, in another source, I see that it's 25 miles long and one mile wide. Anyway, you look at it, the island, if that is an island, is only about 15,000 years old. And it was pressed below the sea level by glaciers during the last ice age. Mark de Villers and Sheila Hertel, they describe Sable Island as the following. Sable Island is an exposed part of a vast shoal on the outer edge of the continental shelf with long, shifting, and barely buried sandbars on all sides with no harbors, prone to fogs and storms. Indeed, Sable Island will become known for uh, primarily shipwrecks. <laughs> so why make a colony there? Well, th there were a couple positives, especially for a European merchant at the end of the 16th century. First of all, it's not on the mainland. A lot of the early European colonists wanted to settle on islands where they can get to the mainland but have the protection of an island because ultimately they didn't know very much about what was going on among the Native Americans. So it was off the mainland, that's one. It was a bit of a way station between Europe and North America. And explorers had determined that Sable Island was a bit warmer than areas in the St. Lawrence. So there were some benefits, but there were so many deficits and so many warnings in the, in, in the front of this story that it's surprising that they ever tried to settle Sable Island. Seeing that it's probable that in 1518, the French had tried to settle Sable Island and it very quickly fell apart. There was a very short-lived colony uh, created by Baron de Léry, a French nobleman, and in 1518, it came and went. It appears at a certain point in the 1530s all the way up into the 1550s, the island was seeded with cattle, either by accident in a, like I said, shipwreck, or on purpose for either an upcoming colony that was being planned or as a place where Portuguese ships could restock supplies, meat. And so the French had early interest in the island, the Portuguese also, but by the year 1600 or so, the island was just full of feral animals, pigs and cows, things like that, things that never lived there before. The island had no trees and was surrounded by shipwrecks, warning everybody off, including ships that may have been owned by Fagundes, as we learned about in our second episode of this season, Portuguese Explorer. 
And that brings us back to our international man of mystery, LaRoche. He had actually tried to settle his claim as far back as 1578. But his entire colonizing fleet was captured by the English. He tried again in 1583 and 84 and suffered shipwrecks and other setbacks that basically made it so the ships never even left port. But this only takes us to the 1580s. Well, why didn't he make further attempts? We've already talked about the year 1600. Well, as it turns out, Laroque was a Protestant. And like we've talked about before, nine civil wars of religion in France. He uh, took the wrong side from time to time and ended up in prison. Sometimes for years. Sometimes for as long as seven years. And by the time the dust settled nationally, and for Laroque personally, it was 1596. And by 1597, he received back all his rights and privileges to New France, which at this point had languished unused for over 20 years, so much so that many of the many in the royal court completely forgot about these titles and were handing out similar ones like we talked about for de Chauvin. The pressure was building for the French to make good on their claims, settle some people, because the English were poking their head around the New World. As we know, we're coming up on the year 1600. 1607 will be Jamestown. 1620 will be Plymouth. In the 1580s, you have Roanoke, the failed colony. And in 1583, Sir Humphrey Gilbert takes formal possession of Newfoundland on behalf of England. And so the pressure was on. But LaRoque, he couldn't find people who willingly wanted to settle these unknown parts of the world and live on a little spit of an island off in the North Atlantic. And so he was authorized to take 250 convicts who would serve as the founders or prisoners of this colony. The King of France himself contributed funds and became an investor in the endeavor. And all they could really scrounge up were about 60 convicts who were described as strong tramps and sturdy beggars. Since this would be a penal colony, it was also beneficial that Sable Island was selected. There was nowhere to go. You can't escape. There's no natives to join. You're absolutely stuck. LaRoque himself scouted out Sable Island once again in 1597. And by 1598, everything seemed ready to go. He received a new title from the French crown. He became Lieutenant General of Canada, Newfoundland, Labrador, and Norumbega. Now, all of these names, you probably recognize most of them. They didn't exactly line up with their modern-day territories. And Norumbega was a vague area between what is now the northern part of the state of Maine all the way into central New York. There really was no Norumbega. It was almost like a lost city, a lost land, mythical place. But nonetheless, even though having no eyes or ears in the area, he became the general of it. This was a grand title that had absolutely no substance. There was, no, there was nobody on the ground who had any allegiance to this man whatsoever, and his only colonists were living on an island some hundred miles off the coast of one of his distant lands. The King of France would eventually upgrade him from Lieutenant General to Viceroy of New France. De Chauvin at Tadoussac, of course, or Tadoussac, would become his lieutenant, although they had absolutely no cooperation between them whatsoever. Laroque would have control of the fur trade coming in from North America, and in the long term it's believed that Sable Island would become a sort of way station, that private traders would be operating in North America under a license, of course, issued by Laroque and his monopoly, they would bring the furs to Sable Island, and then his operations would bring the furs back to France, allowing the traders to quickly return back to North America to resupply. 
but I'm going to ruin it for you right now. None of that ever came to fruition. LaRoche ends up dropping off 50 or 60 criminals, 10 soldiers, and one Franciscan monk on this island. Storms drove LaRoche back to France. And for a while after returning there, he was again imprisoned. And the colonists were left with exactly one winter's worth of supplies. That's what the record says. One winter's worth. And with this, as you can imagine, supplies would run out very quickly if the colonists didn't figure out how to make for themselves. Now, first of all, like we've talked about, there were cattle planted on this little tiny island some decades previously. So there were red cattle there. There were black foxes. There may have been some pigs. And of course, there was tons of sea life around. And so food wouldn't be as big of an issue as you would think. But there were no trees on the island. There was no way to build structures, dwellings, nothing. The only wood they could find came from shipwrecks. As you can imagine, just planks of wood that had been uh, soaked in seawater for God only knows how long. That's all they had to shelter themselves from the elements. But also, think about how they're cooking their food. If wood was so precious, it's reported that they cooked their food by burning feces. Animal feces, it didn't really matter. That's all they really had to burn was dried out feces. On top of all this, the colonists were expected to find something to export back to France when the resupply ships finally did show up. So if you want your resupply, you got to give us something. They learned how to hunt seals and walruses, and they were able to use their skins as a trade good, and they were able to uh, render the oil. So they had oil, they had skins, and from the walruses, they were able to harvest the ivory. But this wasn't some sort of primitive paradise, this uh, Garden of Eden. By no means was it anything like that. The commandant on the island in charge of the soldiers, I believe his name was Commandant Cuebonnier, and I'm probably saying that wrong. At some point, he was having difficulty with all of these prisoners and requested help from France. And in the resupply ships, one of these first couple years, 1597, 98, 99, right in there, they send out a French policeman of the rank of lieutenant general to help keep the order. And so the commandant and the lieutenant general were basically the government of this tiny little colony. But I, I say government, but in reality, they were the prison guards, the, the wardens of this colony. And in return for these few products they were able to scrape out of Sable Island, the resupply ships would bring wine and clothing. And in some records it says only wine and clothing. So everything else you might need to survive, you'd have to find yourself or make yourself, catch yourself, kill yourself. It was all on you other than wine and clothing. It was a meager living and tensions were on the rise year after year as it was clear uh, your quality of life wasn't going to improve on this island. It was only going to get worse and then you were going to die. Now come the year 1602, there was no resupply ship. Of course, the settlers waiting month after month they wouldn't really know that the ship wasn't going to come. But as the winter dragged on in 1602 turned into 1603, tempers began to flare. And the details get vague. But basically, there may have been around 60 people on Sable Island. But by the end of 1603, when a resupply ship did show up, there were 11. The Commandant, Quirbonnier, or however you say his name, dead. The Lieutenant General, dead. The colonists had risen up and killed their leadership, and then spent the winter killing one another until there were 11 left living in their driftwood houses, their clothes long fallen off their body, wearing seal skins. There was a royal official on board 
this resupply ship who was supposed to inspect the state of the colony. And he found everything in such dire condition. He immediately took all the survivors, put them on board his ships, and headed back for France. One person, however, did stay behind. It was that lonely, quiet Franciscan monk we talked about earlier, who lived somehow through all these horrors, but was sick and figured himself to be close to death. He has to remain on Sable Island and die there peacefully. But it is recorded that he survived, became a hermit on the island, and whenever there were shipwrecks on the shoals off the coast of Sable Island, he would go and rescue the survivors and mend them back to health. And it said even to this day, among the fog and the sand and the waves, that his spirit haunts the island, being its only permanent resident. LaRoque was furious with his colonists slash convicts and took the skins they had and the oil they had and anything they had to trade for himself as payment for their destruction of his colony and actually had them brought before the king because he was so angry with them. He wanted them all hung for being uh, traitors, uh, for committing treason, for rebelling against uh, duly appointed French officials. But the king uh, heard their terrible stories probable cannibalism starvation bad weather uh, living like an animal in the woods the king took pity on them and actually gave them a small amount of money and demanded LaRoque give the proceeds of all their supplies back to these convicts and what happened to them after this point is unknown hopefully they lived a better life than the one they were forced to live on a glorified sandbar in the North Atlantic as I said to this day the island remains uninhabited, save for one ghost. There are occasional navigational and weather employees who work on stations on Sable Island. That's about it. So why bring all this up? This seemingly has nothing to do with anything. And if you've been listening to this season of the show, we've gone through 80 years of New France history, and nothing has really gotten off the ground yet. In fact, if you look in a social studies textbook, American social studies textbook, on the topic of New France, it'll mention Cartier, and then it just will just skip right ahead to Samuel de Champlain. All this stuff in the middle almost always goes without mention. Well, after this horrible experience, Laroque sells all his rights to New France to Chauvin. And now suddenly this one guy, who himself faced mostly failures in starting a colony, he had all the titles. It was all in one basket. And now this is setting the stage for when New France will actually take off. And so in our next episode, we're going to meet a guy I just mentioned, Samuel D. Champlain. The story of New France is about to heat up. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening to the Other States of America podcast. Find us on all the Twitters and the Faceplace and just Google us. We're on the interwebs. You know how it works. <laughs>